Good morning, Peninsula. This week, you have blessed me with the emails you've sent me, you've challenged me, and you've made me grateful to be your pastor. Because I gave you an assignment last week that many of you took to heart. And those who replied, including myself, discovered a couple of things about what I asked you to do. Number one, it was a lot harder than you thought it was going to be. And number two, it forced us all to think through all seven of the letters written by Jesus to the churches in Revelation. Paul Tripp, I think, adds some much-needed context to this entire message this morning when he wrote this, God's stern warnings are a gift of grace. He is not judging you, but in mercy, leading you back into the safety of His pathway. If you're new, you are very confused right now. So let me set the stage for what we're going to do this morning. In the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, there are seven letters written by Jesus and addressed to seven different churches in western Turkey, modern Turkey, and Asia Minor. These seven churches, they're located roughly 30 to 50 miles apart on a circular route that begins at Ephesus on the coast, goes northward to Smyrna, up to Pergamum, and then makes the the turn down south to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That explains the order in which these letters are found in your Bible. If you were dropping off these letters, you would just make this circular route and then return to Ephesus. So why did God choose these cities, though? Because it's very interesting, there are some churches in that area that are more prominent than these seven. We know that these seven served as headquarters for postal district in the area, and so if you wanted to get your message cast as broadly as possible, you send it to each of these cities who could then copy it and send it on. But there's another possibility that's probably more likely. All of these seven cities had temples and priests and altars dedicated to emperor worship. So perhaps these letters were written to these cities because it was meant to be a frontline attack on the culture of the day. But we learned something very important each week as we studied these letters. We've been through all seven. They were each very personal. Jesus knew each one of these churches individually, and he knew the people in these churches individually, and he knew the culture around each church, and we could see that reflected in each letter. Sometimes the culture they faced caused them to fight back. At other times, it caused them to just give in. But in both cases, the culture of their church was in some way shaped by the culture of the city in which they lived. So as we worked our way through each of these short mini-letters, one by one, we've discovered that these letters were as relevant to us today as they were in the first century. And there are lessons for every church in these seven letters. This is God's word for us, not just for them. And we concluded at the end of each letter kind of a, a probing question for us to ask about our own lives. And this slide will come up many times in the sermon just to remind you where we are and, and what we're doing. And, and I'm not, I don't need to read them all as long as it shows up on the screen. That's the video. There we go. 
I know, I'm a terrible father. <laughs> That's my son. So, Ephesus asked, is your love for Christ alive and growing? Smyrna, do you, do you love like Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you live like Jesus is enough? You, you know all of these if you've been here. These are the seven churches and the seven questions. And we use these as tools to examine our own lives. And we use them as tools to examine our own church. And so last Sunday morning, I asked you to do two things. I asked you to reflect on two questions. Which church most speaks to your life? And which church letter could have been written directly to us at Peninsula? And our tendency is to always listen to the lessons that are the easiest to digest. It's always easier to listen to the encouragement than the rebuke. And so this week, many, and I mean many of you, sifted back through these letters and you said, is this true of me? Is this true of us? And I asked you to think and to pray this week, and many of you did. How many responses did I get? Any guesses? I got 30, don't guess. I actually got one this morning, 31. Not included in the total here, so there you go. I received 30 responses, and so I want to talk this morning about your observations and my observations about where we are. And so we're going to look at what we think we are individually, what we think we are corporately, and then we're going to end with some encouragement. Because God's stern warnings are a gift of His grace. But His mercy is leading us back onto the safety of His pathway. And His pathway is full of hope. So, let's begin by asking the first question. The challenge to us, individually, what is our challenge? We're so used to looking at the raw data of surveys, but our sample size is too small, so I wouldn't really, you know, uh, it's not really, it, it is what it is. Here's what you concluded about yourselves with each of these churches. Twelve of you, Ephesus, and you, you can read the list. There you go. So Ephesus, Philadelphia, and Laodicea are the, are the highest vote getters in our own personal lives. But you will notice, math people, quickly, that what? There's more than 30 responses. Why? Well, with these 52 responses out of 30 emails, you know, a couple of emails, a couple sent them, so there's two people per email. But he, this one, the quote, I'm going to quote now from these letters, emails that I received. Somebody said, five of the seven letters to the churches could have been written to me at just at different times in my walk with Christ. All right? So that's five of those. When you asked us to reflect on this series of sermons and email you an answer, I was really excited. <laughs> that changed. I, it, <laughs> no, I don't know. It felt like an assignment from a favorite class, a chance to engage. I decided to listen to all of the sermons again and meditate on what it meant for me. This person gets an A+, plus, of course. <laughs> My first response is, boy, this exercise can be really guilt-producing. In some way, I see myself in all of these letters. But that doesn't help you much. Someone said 35 years ago, I was Thyatira. Yes, this has been more difficult than it first appears because I think we often see ourselves as we hope to be as opposed to the way we really are. My initial choice would be for the Church of Philadelphia. 
but am I fooling myself? I can also see myself in the letters of Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea. If I still have a passion for reaching unbelievers, why then am I serving less? 20, 25 years ago, the letter to Pergamon could have been written to me. I was deeply distressed by the political bent of the church, both right and left. If there was a Bible-centered church in my neighborhood, I never found it. Currently, I find myself burned out and numb, if I'm honest. My longing for Jesus is there, but like the Laodiceans, there's some indifference. Not because I don't care. It is more of, of a helpless feeling. It seems the more I care or try to reach out, the more of the attacks I can expect, which is expected, obviously, but can be paralyzing and demoralizing, especially when it comes to trying to operate in a hostile environment and raise godly children. In a nutshell, my faith feels like a work in progress. Fifteen years ago, the letter to Ephesus was my letter. By then, I was beyond lost, much like the prodigal son I may not have been sleeping with pigs, but I had squandered my birthright in Christ. A bit of Ephesus, Sardis, and Laodicea. Hard work, perseverance, cannot tolerate wicked people. Wake up, trying to strengthen what is alive, but yes, too lukewarm. Each church had something to say to me. Each week I walked away asking God to increase my love for him, my faithfulness and commitment to him, my opinion is that there may be different answers for different seasons in our personal life and church life, which I think a lot of people concluded. So for this season, I will probably say the most common answer, Laodicea. It is because the Christian life has been part of my life for almost all my life. Church going, prayer, devotions are ingrained habits. I know all the things I need to do and usually do most of them. But there are times it is easy to become blasé and, and do them out of habit, not out of a deep desire to commune with my Savior. My faith is there and I will never give it up, but often I don't really expect great things. I don't often take a risk and step out in true faith. So yes, lukewarm can describe my spiritual life. It is also because I am in a comfortable place in life. It is also easy to use old age as an excuse. I don't have the energy or whatever. But those are excuses that can keep me from a deep abiding relationship with Jesus. Is this helpful? I got two more. So this was more, a more difficult assignment than I had expected. I've been struggling with it for days. I think mainly because I can identify with something from almost every letter. I chose Ephesus for myself because since the pandemic and the election, there's been a lot of division in the church. I'm not a confrontational person, so rather than speak up when someone has said something hurtful or made comments I do not agree with, I have dealt with those situations by shutting down or walking away. What stands out? Three things to me. The difficulty of this journey for all of us. But the word of God is sharp and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and you listen to it. Second, I do think that different letters do speak to us clearly and more certainly at, at various times in our lives. We need them all. Therefore, we might get to do this service, this series again, you know, we might need it at a different stage of life. 
And number three, if you didn't reflect on this question this week, it's not too late. Do it. You don't even have to send me an email. But do it. Because those who participated, it seemed like a very valuable experience. So just do it. Point number two, the challenge then for us. What do we hear to us corporately? I asked you to consider what does one particular church letter stand out as applicable to Peninsula? If you attended one of these churches in the first century, you would have only cared about the one letter you got. If you lived in Ephesus, you're going to listen to Ephesus. The others, okay, they got problems. Is there such a letter to Peninsula Community Church? Here's how your answers broke down uh, to this question. I don't need to read those. You're intelligent people. Right? It's interesting, I think. Philadelphia was the highest vote-getter, put it that way. The church with open doors for ministry. And yet the undertone of the question is, are you really willing to suffer and go through these open doors? And Laodicea, the lukewarm church, who received the harshest rebuke and asked, have you forgotten how desperately you need the Lord? Here's what you had to say. Are you ready for this? On your second question, I have no opinion. <laughs> I haven't been at Peninsula long enough to make that determination, but I'm really interested to, what, to hear what your congregation has to say about themselves. I would say, however, that from your teaching, both past and present, I have listened to past sermons online. A plus. <laughs> Three eight seems to describe Peninsula. I know your deeds. You have kept my word and have not denied my faith or my, my name. But are we willing to suffer? My first impression has been quite positive in terms of doctrine and what is spoken and the warmth and welcoming nature of the members of the congregation. The church is doing good things, ministering to members of the congregation and supporting missions. But the church is a reflection of the hearts of the members of the congregation. The church isn't lukewarm. I think we're good, but we always need to do better. Could our love for Jesus be stronger? Are we desperate for Jesus? Being good is not good enough. We can and we should always find ways to turn up the temperature and walk through the door. As a corporate body, I see Peninsula as leaning toward becoming Laodicea. Not all the members, of course. There are many heroes of faith at Peninsula. But as a corporate body, I find PCC lukewarm. There's a little corporate, there is little corporate passion expressed in worship. People sit, they listen, they're entertained, and the words and the music wash over them rather than through them. I rarely see tears of conviction. I rarely see people undone. Our church remains true to their faith and with their hope in the gospel. But many of us have put a huge emphasis on our politics, giving it an importance that it does not deserve biblically, just as the church in Pergamum intertwined the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans into their faith in Christ. But I think that PCC's lukewarm nature is not just that we are a relatively wealthy church. Another part of our is our geographical and social isolation. PV Peninsula is essentially a beautiful island where we have the ability to simply not see the pain and suffering in the broader Los Angeles basin, let alone the rest of the world. 
With that kind of isolation, our comfort becomes conceit. Not only that we are creators of this beautiful island of peace and prosperity, but that our comfort is universally achievable. Our peculiar American individualism and exceptionalism encourages those of us who are enjoying God's abundance to believe that we are the cause of that abundance and that those who are struggling or suffering are likewise the cause of their poverty and distress. In thinking this, we often insulate ourselves from anxiety and create distance from pain, and we also impoverish ourselves spiritually. We miss out on gratitude and the beauty that comes from acknowledging our dependence. For Peninsula, I find that the letter to the Church of Philadelphia makes most sense to me. Although we probably aren't as small, we have been given so many opportunities. And from the outside looking in, it seems that more doors, more doors open with each opportunity than presents, that presents itself. I, we came to Peninsula because we... this. We came to Peninsula because the church we had been attending was still online. We also wanted to attend a church in the community for our kids. What has struck me most is the ease of which I feel attending your church. I feel at peace, almost restful. Maybe that is not what you want to hear. Well, I think it's okay. <laughs> but it's been good for me and my family's soul. We've been faithful but many of us are aging. We've done this church thing for so long. We know it is good. We know it could be great, but okay is good enough for this time in life. We're comfortable, well, most of us. We live in a wonderful place. We're not currently experiencing corporate suffering. We have most of our needs met. We do good things. We love most of the time, and at least on Sundays, and we aren't sure we want a huge tidal wave. It's a lot of work and a lot of trouble but we will write our checks and let others do the work for us. Growth and change are messy and time-consuming and hard, so we just settle. Should I keep going? Or is this boring you? Okay. I think the pandemic really did a number on many in the church. People have left the church, pulled back from serving the church, and that was partly due to the lockdowns. I also believe Satan used the pandemic as a tool to tempt us to become withdrawn, some to be disruptive, others, like me, I guess, becoming a little bit more complacent and use the online service and less involved with the church mission. I'm thankful for the young adults I see rising up in our midst who are still passionate and vocal and take risks. They will help keep us from the mediocrity that could kill us. We need each other. For PCC, I've decided on the letter to the church at Ephesus because we have worked hard, persevered, and tested teachers and teachings. But I think it, it would be good for us each to examine our brotherly love. Yes, we're friendly, kind, and helpful. That's what attracted me to the church in the first place. But I think it would be good to examine how deep and how wide, how spontaneous, how enthusiastic, how genuine is our charitable spirit. And does everyone in the church express brotherly love or just some? One more, and it's long. Not that long. I said that our church's letter was Laodicea. This was not about the church's leadership, nor was it about the many faithful individual members who are sold out for the gospel. Our church is actually good when it comes to raising up volunteers for activities like Harvest Festival or VBS. But we are largely an affluent congregation, certainly by the world's standards. 
who have busy lives but with little sense of how tenuous life can be. We don't worry about our next meal or whether someone is firing mortars at us. It is true that getting a dromedary through the, that's a camel, getting a dromedary through the fat end of a needle is comparable to the difficulty we have in recognizing how desperately we do need a savior. In that context, PCC does well in overcoming the tendency to be comfortable Christians who can help the kingdom by writing a check. But we must strive to do better and to put our soul into service as well as our mammon or our money. What, are we, what conclusions can we draw? Again, it's a very difficult assignment. And let me remind you, I am not claiming this morning to have the gift of prophecy. Okay? It is not my role. And I do not think we need the voice of a prophet in this moment. We need to take a long look and take the log out of our own eye that we might be able to take the speck out of the rest. If you would press me, I would probably say most likely the letter I think would identify with us is Philadelphia, the church with plenty of open doors for ministry. And you always step up, you always reach out. We, you're willing to try new venues for service. We can be risk-averse personally, clinging to our own comfort and life. Next Sunday morning, we're going to blast the doors off of that comfort level. I'm going to challenge you a little bit in a new open door, possibly for ministry. But who also is not Laodicea? The desire to fan the flames of our passion for Jesus is a constant need for us all. I do think we need to regain the passion for our purpose, the place that we have in this world. But by God's grace, we will get there and we will do that. So I want to end with some encouragement. We're going to get to the Bible. Some specific biblical truth. Number three, the thread of encouragement. See, the issue of rewards is a thread that runs through all seven of these letters. In fact, it's really, I think, the overall purpose of the book of Revelation. When things get really bad, hold on, hang in there. But in these letters especially, the, the encouragement for us is to become a victor, to become an overcomer. We should all be believers who actually obey Jesus Christ. That's a given, right? That's an imperative. No one would deny that. But an issue arises as soon as we, we ask, well, what happens to a believer if they do not obey? Some would say if you don't obey, then what you're really doing is demonstrating that you've never had faith in the beginning. You just have this intellectual thing and it's not true faith. Others would say, well, if you sin big enough, long enough, you're going to lose that salvation. And yet, in the book of Revelation, in these seven letters, there's been a constant theme running through them and a theme that we cannot miss. In each letter, things are offered to victors, to overcomers. Just as the letter is closing, what's offered? Is that salvation? I don't think so. Or is it something else? Let's look. You got your Bibles? Revelation 2, verse 7. They'll be on the screen just in case. 
the one who is victorious or the overcomer, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, it's only the victorious who get to eat from the fruit of the tree of, of, of life. The, the leaves are for the healing of the nation later on in Revelation, but the fruit, it's only for victors. It's only for overcomers. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all believers get to eat the fruit, only the overcomers. Next letter, uh, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death, not even touching them. The victor has, will not be harmed by the second death at all. Why? Because in exchange for their death, they receive the crown of life. Physical death, it may be painful. For, them, for some, we may be martyred. But the second death will not harm them in any way. That's a double negative. You don't do that in English, but you do it in Greek. No way. Verse 17. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give to that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus is saying, if you trust me, I will be the one who supplies whatever you need, this, this manna, this stone. I'll be your intimate companion, and we can share your deepest longings. What a wonderful reward. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. That one will rule them, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. You remain faithful today, what do you get? You get to rule with Christ. You get to reign with him, to share in the kingdom that will spread around the world. When he rules as king of kings and lord of lords, you get to help be part of the administration. Verse, chapter 3, verse 5. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. When we stand before God, no one will say, Oh, Jim. I wonder why he's here. Jesus will say, hey, it's Jimmy, my friend. It's the one I have an intimate relationship with. Don't get used to that name. <laughs> it's only certain circles in which I'm called that. This ain't one of them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Call me whatever you want. There is no greater reward for the believer than to be personally known and recognized by the Savior. Verse 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write, them, write on them the name on my, of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. The power to name is the power of ownership. To those whom God has redeemed, he's named them, he's claimed them. If you want eternal security, it's only found in Christ in all of life. 
Verse 21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. The glory of this promise is given to the church. You know it, with, with had the greatest problems, but they get the greatest promise. To serve God year after year faithfully is a challenge, but his throne is promised to those who serve faithfully. Jesus offers so many rewards to victors, to the overcomers, to believers who are faithful to death, to believers who serve Jesus obediently. Not all born-again believers will be victors or overcomers, but those who do what Jesus asks will be richly rewarded. Believers cannot lose their salvation, but we can lose these rewards. Your throne is not guaranteed. You have no promise that you get to eat the fruit at the tree. And remember the words of Paul Tripp. God's warnings might be convicting, but they are a gift of his grace. He's not judging you, but in mercy, he's bringing you back onto the pathway. His pathway. And what's at the end of that pathway? Crowns and thrones and special intimacy with Jesus. How good is our God? So how do we wrap all of this up? You see, the nature of prophecy as a genre is to be purposefully vague. You know, if he had named who the, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the beast is going to be, wrote his name down, I mean, what's, what's the, we just wait for that name to appear. I mean, he's done that before, but not in Revelation. And these letters prepare us for the future. How? By causing us to examine our lives today as individuals and as a church. And then why? Why do we need to do that? Why begin with this tough but loving section? Because in the book of Revelation and in our lives, difficult days are coming. Whether or not they include the tribulation described in the next chapters of Revelation, I don't know. But I do know this, we live in a sin-ravaged planet. Have we looked at the headlines lately? And what do we need to hear more than anything else as the end draws near? I take away two exhortations. Number one, stay faithful. Stay faithful. God has provided us incentives to motivate us to stay faithful. He will reward the child who gave that, their, their missions, gave to the missions offering the money they've saved for a softball glove. He's going to reward the student who kept himself pure despite all of the temptations. He's going to reward the man who tenderly cared for his wife with Alzheimer's. He's going to reward the mother who raised that child with cerebral palsy. He'll reward the child who rejoiced in his heart despite that handicap. He'll reward the unskilled worker who was faithful and the skilled worker who was meek and, and servant-hearted. He'll reward the cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus. He'll reward the parents who modeled Christ to their children and the children who followed Christ in spite of the bad example of their parents. He'll reward those who suffered while trusting in him 
and he'll help and he'll reward those who helped those in suffering. Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with all his angels, and he will reward each person according to what he has done. He is watching to see what we do. Are we going to be faithful? And there are times in my life I look back and I think about some faithful examples. I think about the church in which I grew up, small, by any standard, insignificant. You've never heard of it. But I think of the people in that church. Each week, just like you, they came in and sat in their assigned seats. <laughs> they were present, however. And many didn't miss ever. Someone just sat 10 rows back on the right every week. One lady had polio as a child. Walked in with a huge limp. But she was there. One couple always seemed a bit odd as a child growing up with a thick Greek accent. But with the ups and the many downs of a small church life, they never left, ever. For many, it was the gift of being, of, of being present that I remember. When I was in seminary, I would often think back to my home church. Floods of images would, would come over my mind. Their faithfulness, you speak, spoke volumes to me. Filling those pews, just being in there week after week, it helped to change my life. And many of those believers are gold and silver and precious stone people. And because they were, they helped put something more permanent into my life. They're all in heaven now. But only heaven will tell their stories. So stay faithful. We're getting closer all the time. Number two, take risks. First lesson, stay faithful. Second exhortation, take risks. A ship is safe when it's anchored in the harbor. But that's not what a ship is for. I think many of us feel as if our ship's been anchored in the harbor, weathering, just get through this storm. It's been two years now. And now... It is time to hoist the sail and get back into the open waters. But if your goal is to live a life of security and safety, then you're going to end up with that. But you will not end up with Jesus. Jesus never took the safe road. If you're going to walk with him, it's going to require taking some risks. He never took a shortcut to play it safe. And to be a follower of Jesus means you need to be so secure in his love for you that you never play it safe again. You might fail, of course you might, but he still loves you. Because our salvation puts us in such a position that we can afford to take huge risks. Because we know that God will love us even when we, when we fail. And, and why risk for the kingdom? Because we're all going to die someday. And since we're all going to die someday, the only question is whether or not we're going to die playing it safe or risking it all for Christ. I don't want to die until I'm dead. I want to live until the very last moment, fully investing myself in the kingdom. I want to do everything I can to advance his cause in the world. I don't want to waste the few years that I got on the planet hoarding my resources so I can be secure here. 
Our great calling is to find out what is God doing in the world and then filling ourselves wholeheartedly into his, flinging ourselves wholeheartedly into his cause. So go back to the world. Go back to your home. Go back to your neighborhood, to your community, to your business, to your classroom, to your club, to your family. Take some risks. C.S. Lewis said, you got to have one of his quotes, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. I should try that. <laughs> if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. But comfort seeking is our default mode in a consumer society. So we find ourselves with a comfortable Christianity without even knowing it. And yet comfortable Christianity is far from the costly inconvenient, idol-crushing, cross-shaped path that the disciples of Jesus Christ are required to walk. See, uncomfortable Christianity is going to lead to, to transformation. It's going to lead us to life. Uncomfortable Christianity leads us to rely on God and not ourselves. It leads us to serve rather than be served. It leads us to, to live a, a life that's marked by sacrifice. It leads us to do hard things and embrace hard truths, to do life with, the, with hard people. You know, it ain't easy to always be a sheep in a, in a flock. <laughs> I won't go there. The most glorious days of the pandemic where we'd walk in, there wouldn't be a soul here and go home. We didn't have any conflict. <laughs> it was like, well, we could do this for a while, but it was horrible. Where we go may be uncomfortable, but it will be worth it. Because on the other side of discomfort is a delight in Christ. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father in heaven, I wish I was a prophet. But we need to hear all the letters. And we need to take responsibility for how we examine our own lives and the lives of this church family. And so I pray that you would use the word of God to launch us into a fresh vision of ministry. That where we need to repent, we would be honest and repent. And where we need to cling to you more, we would do so. That you'd heat up the water. That we'd be hot. That we might impact our community. And our world. Where we go from here, let it be clear. That we've gone following the hand of the shepherd. That you might lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.